It's cold in here. Maybe there's ghosts in here. Oh. Hey, murder lovers. My name's Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. <laughs> We're a fucking circus around here. <laughs> That's how it feels sometimes. Back to your regularly scheduled programming. Anything true crimey while we're at it? Murder Among Mormons. Oh, don't God. bother. Blech. Watch what? Marriage versus Mortgage instead and tell me if you're I have more no idea inclined what to buy that is, but <laughs> I put a poll on our Instagram the other that. night because I just want to know who would pick a marriage like a wedding over a house because I'm truly appalled at the number of people who did. But yeah, Murder Among Mormons, don't waste your time. It was super boring. Uh yeah, I mean the title alone, I'm like Murder Mormons, let's go. It's gonna be great. And um I was no. oh god, it was so lackluster. I was like, man, you guys killed it with the name. And then it just went that's it from downhill from there. It's a good story. I, I don't think they presented it well. No. It could have been a lot better. It was a but flop. it was a bore. Holy moly. People did die. People did get injured. There was bombs. There was things that they could have just presented in a more exciting way. Not saying, you know, glamorize bad things, but man, they did a terrible job. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see some exciting, like, somebody dying or something, go watch the most recent episode of Grey's Anatomy and see who they kill off there. Hey, we'll be watching I may or may not have cried. Stop it. Not a fan. Oh, Shonda does it again. It was terrible. That is the most prolific murderer of all time. Shonda Rhimes. Yes. We stand by it. <sighs> Anyways. All right. What do you got today? So today, we're going back to our old school way of doing things where you don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-mm. And I'm going to hopefully surprise you with the story. I'm just glad for it to be anything other than yeah. Scott Peterson. <laughs> Truly. Well, this is the part four, Scott. I'm just kidding. Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, I quit. <laughs> I quit forever. Part four, Scott Peterson. Maybe we're leaving. <laughs> Where is he now? Grab your leash. Let's go. <laughs> no, so today I found a case that comes fr- comes to us from the UK. And this was something that happened a little bit ago, um, in 2002, and I did do some research because the name, the name of the town that this happened in is called Soham. Also, do you notice when you say 2002, you say a little bit ago and it's literally almost been 20 years. Doesn't that like hit you? Yeah. (laughs) It's spelled S-O-H-A-M. So people from, you know, the 50 nifty states over here, I would have called it Soham, but it is pronounced Soham. It's commonly known as the Soham murders. Almost when I was researching this, it almost, I drew a lot of parallels as far as how big it was in the news to our case here with Kyron Horman. Just a lot of news. Everyone knew about it. So just big news. That's what everyone that was... Um, watched a lot of podcasts on this and a lot of YouTubes on it. And everyone that was recounting it that was from the UK was just saying that, you know, they knew about it even before, while they were kids, while they're teenagers, young adults. They remember it vividly because it was just always in the media. So big, very big case. This is the case of Jessica Amy Chapman and Holly Marie Wells. Two little girls, very close in age. They were both 10 years old. They were in the same grade, so they always hung out together. 
on this particular day in on Sunday, August the 4th of 2002, Jessica went over to Holly's house and they, her Holly's family had a barbecue. So they had a big, you know, amount of family over. Jessica had just come back from a vacation with her family and she had a small little gift that she wanted to give to, to Holly. So they spent the entire day together. They were at the, at the family barbecue. Eventually as the day went on, they went up to Holly's bedroom and they put on matching shirts. They put on, Holly put on Manchester United number seven Beckham jersey. And then Jessica put on Holly's brother's same jersey. So they were matching, uh, matching jerseys that day. And as they were hanging out, they lived in a very small town. This is a town of Soham. And the way that I see it, portrayed it almost looks like the little village from beauty and the beast like everything's together there's like a central little you know roundabout and and everything's within reach etc everything's within walking distance so the girls because there's you know a big get together at the family house they didn't bother telling anyone that they were going to leave the house and go to a nearby soccer complex to a vending machine to get some candy or just Mm -hmm. to get some snacks so they decided they were going to walk over there and their CCTV confirming that the girls were at the soccer complex getting stuff out of the vending machine. As far as CCTV goes, that is the last time that the girls were seen alive. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, the girls, we know now they walked by one of their teacher's assistant's house and the husband was outside. From that point on, the girls went missing. Mm-hmm. Holly's parents went upstairs to get the girls for something. They realized that they weren't there. They called Jessica's parents. Of course, Jessica and Holly are not at their house either. They looked around town. They drove around for a little bit. In less than an hour, they'd already called and contacted the police and said, we have two missing girls, two 10-year-old girls. And the search began for those girls. So by the next morning, there was three different precincts that had come together as well as a crap ton of volunteers over 600 volunteers and people in police uniforms canvassing the entire town trying to figure out who saw these girls where are they because of the area that they're in as soon as you go out of the houses and where the main parts are there's a lot of wooded areas so they looked into those areas too maybe the girls got lost maybe one of them got injured etc but they couldn't find the girls Mm -hmm. As they were canvassing the town, they stumbled upon one of these, uh, this guy named Ian Huntley, who said, I saw the girls at around 6.15, which is exactly the time that would have been when the girls were coming back from the soccer complex to their house. And he said, I saw them. I was washing up my dog outside. He was dirty. They were walking by. And they asked me about my wife because it's their, it was their teacher assistant. They had asked if she had gotten the full-time position that she had applied for so she could be a, a full-time teacher next year. How old were these girls again? 10 years old. It's kind of a weird question for a 10-year-old to ask. Right. Yeah. They really love this TA, apparently. Mm-hmm. So they, they just asked. Apparently, they were just walking by. Yeah. And he said, I told him that, you know, she didn't get the full-time position. They said, sorry, but tell her hi. And they went walking, and that's the last time I saw them. So this guy, right off the bat, day one, 
he puts himself right in the middle of the investigation because he's mm-hmm. saying, I'm potentially the last person that saw them alive. The next, the day after that, they went missing. The parents made a public statement. Because they were wearing matching jerseys, which happened that Holly's parents had taken a picture of them at the barbecue with the matching jerseys. It was a fresh picture. This was the picture that hit the news, right? And hit yeah. it hard. And it's a bright red jersey, very identifiable. And because it's branded, it's Beckham, even he made a public plea to the, to the UK asking if you've seen anything, please, you know, mm-hmm. let, let police know. And also telling the girls, hey, if, you know, you've done nothing wrong, you're not going to be in trouble, come back home. Right, if they run so, away or something. Exactly. Yeah. The runaway situation was, it. they threw that theory out right away because they're, they didn't take anything else with them. They had nothing but a couple bucks on them. And Holly did have a phone. The parents, of course, tried to call that because that's exactly what it was for, for emergencies, etc. They couldn't reach her. Her phone wasn't even ringing at one point. So the searches continue. It kind of, it didn't fizzle off, but there wasn't any leads. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the police did something really weird, which I haven't seen in any other missing kids cases. They hired two little girls that matched Holly and Jessica's height and stature and whatever. Mm-hmm. They even went as far as cutting the girls' hair so they would match the girls that were missing. And they reenacted their entire steps and had them wear the same kind of clothes to see if it would jog anyone's memory. Oh, wow. And it did. Really? It did. So, like, one taxi driver said that he had seen like a blue car and like someone struggling with someone inside that one didn't pan out but then something more that came out was that the next day someone remembers seeing Ian Huntley at the back of a car in the trunk with a woman standing next to him the woman hysterically crying while they're looking into the trunk and he's holding it up and then as soon as this witness looked over they realized that they were being looked at. So Ian shut the trunk and that's the last thing he saw. He, you know, people also remember jogged the memory of, you know, which way they were walking. So yeah. everything seemed right as far as their location. Well, that's was, interesting. Yeah. They also looked into the theory of did these girls meet someone on an online chat room that they go meet anyone. All of that was ruled out. Mm-hmm. There was no results to that. A couple of days later on the 11th, there was a hiker that stumbled upon two mounds of dirt. Yeah. They <sighs> removed the earth and confirmed that there was no bodies in there. Thank goodness. Yes. So on the 15th of August is when a local TV station kind of did the same thing where they were retracing the steps. And part of that was talking again to the last person that they know for sure might have seen him alive. The news station, and this is one of the parts in the story and the case that stands out a lot because it's so conniving. The news station walked up to Ian Huntley while he was outside and he gave an interview. What? Yeah. And stuck to his story that he was sitting outside with his dog. The girls walked by. They said hi and left. So... But he would do this with every news station that would come by every newspaper. Yeah. He would give interviews. 
he was right in the middle of the investigation. He was making himself part of the investigation, yeah. almost watching it all play out. Yeah. You know, to a certain extent, admiring his own work and just seeing how he was getting away with it. So on the 16th, the police finally took in Ian and his wife, Maxine, to get interviewed. They separated them. Maxine gave an alibi that they were home all night that night, that there was nothing awry, and that he had absolutely nothing to do with this. So they let them, They just let them go. Mind you, I did forget to say this. On the day of, because he had put himself as the last person that had seen them, the police did do a quick walkthrough to, through his house and mm-hmm. didn't see anything undisturbed or anything out of place. Okay. So that was the night of. Okay. So, uh, and then fast forward to the 17th of August, they found the charred remains of their girl's clothes in a garbage can at the campus that Ian Huntley was working at. So he was working at the college in the town while his wife, Maxine, or his girlfriend, was working at the elementary school. So he worked at the college and he had a house that was paid for by the college on college campus. But again, it's this really small village, town, place, so it's all really local. So they found the charred remains of these very noticeable jerseys in a garbage can. They also found his hairs as part of the charred remains that were in a bag. So that immediately, we need to talk to you again, right? So then they interviewed them again, and Maxine confessed that she wasn't at the house that night. She had actually been at her mother's house, a town over, and he picked her up later that evening. Mm. But she said she wasn't, she really believed that he wasn't at fault for anything or he wasn't culpable of anything. If you really believe that, then you shouldn't lie for him. Later that same day on the 17th, unfortunately, they found the charred remains of both girls in a ditch. Oh, God. The burning thing just really like. It's awful. One of the girls still had part of her pants pocket. On like with the remains that had some of the clothes, so they weren't able to identify them. One of them had a piece of jewelry that was identifiable, and unfortunately, they were in a really bad state of decomposition and they had been charged, so they couldn't tell exactly what they died of. The assumption is asphyxiation, though. Yeah. So there is no way, because of the bo- the state of their bodies, to tell whether or not they were sexually assaulted. But, and I'll tell you in a little bit why, they believe that sexual motives were a reason okay. behind, behind why all of this happened. They called in botanist uh, because obviously the remains themselves didn't have any evidence for him to put him there at that scene other than the clothes and the hairs that were in the college campus. Mm -hmm. So really cool thing. They brought in botanist and where he dumped the bodies had a very specific mix of soil Mm -hmm. because it was somewhere where they were trying to grow new vegetation, et cetera. But it had a mix of soil that had almost like small shells in it, like broken up shells and stuff that was very particular to where they were dumped. Yeah. So they were able to trace that to dirt in his tires because he had cleaned his car. Hmm. But they were able to match the same soil samples to 
uh, soil that was in his in his car on his tires. Okay, science. Right. Uh, because of how they they did a really good job at at preserving evidence in here and, and just following where the evidence took them, but because of where they were in in that field, they followed a potential path and they found some of the girl's hair stuck on branches. So they were able to determine like what path he took into this field, Mm -hmm. which we're able to bring back to find that soil patch connected to him. So just really cool about how they did forensics on this case. Really following the trail. Absolutely. He tried to thoroughly clean his car in his house. I'll bet he did. He even washed his down comforter in the washing machine, trying Mm -hmm. to destroy evidence, I'm sure. Um, He vacuumed his entire house, but little did he know that even though the vacuum was picking up stuff, sometimes vacuums throw out more air than they put in, you know, than dig Mm -hmm. in. So some of the fibers from the girl's clothes were spread out through the entire house. Okay, so they did find that the girls had been in the house. Uh, See, I'd love to know what exactly it was in that trunk that the woman saw that she was so upset about. Oh, it had to be the girls. Yeah, but then she's like, but I'm sure he didn't do it. Right. I'm like, okay. So 154 transfers in total of forensics in the house that they believe were spread around through the vacuum. Wow. That's a lot. Damn, don't vacuum a crime scene. No, 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 no. So Don't. Don't commit a crime, though, to well, have Yeah, to, to begin with. But 154 transfers. They were so, so thorough. I'm very, very impressed with how the forensics team worked. Maxine and Ian Huntley were charged with two murders. Or he was charged with two murders. And she was charged with preventing course of justice and also assisting with the cleanup. So a little backstory on why Maxine was vilified so much Mm -hmm. and i mean i think rightfully so but history on ian huntley grew up as a total loser didn't have friends he said he was bullied etc etc from a young age though he showed that he had an interest in younger women so even when he was like 18 he was dating like 11 12 13 year olds that is young That is young. That is also the age that Holly and Jessica were. And... Also, how do you date an 11-year-old is my question. So that's the thing. I remember what it was like to be 11. No. We were like, I like you. (laughs) I like you too. Okay, we're dating. This came out only afterwards. The police only found out about his past after he had been arrested. When he was younger... He had met um, his first wife. They met and they got married within four weeks. Mm-hmm. She very quickly left him for his younger brother. And he didn't divorce her for another five years, even though they hadn't been together from like day one. Right. Just out of spite, of course, that he, you know, she had gone with his brother. He'd also had a child with someone that I believe was 17 or um, not quite 18 at the time. Right. He was accused of a couple rapes or molesting people or, or, or girls younger than 18. Yeah. But these charges never went through for a couple of reasons. Either because the women that were involved or young girls felt like they were dating because he was so controlling. Yeah. 
And they never wanted to bring charges, so there was never enough evidence don't have a complaint. to yeah. bring him in. Got it. And then also when he was close to being charged with stuff, he would have, he would make a claim for mental incapacities. So he would never get charged. So this happened a couple times. Right before he met Maxine, it happened again in the town that they were in. And then when he met Maxine, it happened again where he was accused of rape. But charges were never actually stuck on him. So they moved again. So they moved twice while he was with Maxine, trying to get away from this rap that he was getting. Almost because he never got charged with it. There was never a trial for it. Uh Maxine believed him when he said, they're falsely accusing me. Right. So this is where I think that he was controlling to an extent of Maxine. Right. Where he was painting this picture that I'm just a victim. I'm getting accused of these things. They've got the wrong guy. And because they never went to trial, Maxine believed him. Yeah, I can see that. And protected him. So um, apparently he was really controlling, though. The town that they lived in right before they moved to Soham, one of the neighbors said that she always heard yelling, that Mm -hmm. her window looked right into their, you know, into their house, and she would always hear yelling, and that, you know, she went over once and had tea with Maxine, and Maxine, like, quickly got up and washed the cup and, like, dried it and washed it with bleach and whatever and she's like well that's weird and I guess Maxine confided in her said yeah you know he doesn't like it when I have people over so he was very controlling in that sense where he is not even letting his quote-unquote girlfriend see anyone which if he's doing that to younger girls yeah I can see how he's controlling them on everything yeah you know even their thoughts about how their relationship is working it's grooming. Exactly. Grooming. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Part of this case brought up a huge question, which is why is someone, quote unquote, with a record with children and being indecent and molesting and potential rape, mm-hmm. how is that person allowed to get a job in education? That is an excellent question. Yes. So... Because of this case, they looked into that and they started a database for people that have been convicted convicted of sex crimes, etc. Based um, on this case? Yes. Oh, good. So everyone now that is applying for jobs that are jobs in the public or jobs with kids, jobs that are, you know, I am in a, education. I'm super disappointed, though, it took until 2002 for that to happen. Right. But at least it happened. Yeah. So, but the thing is, though, is that he kept falling through the loopholes, which he hadn't been charged with any of these. Yeah, this guy is disgusting. When he was 25, he was, um, he had been brought up on charges for raping an 11-year-old and admitted to it. Ew. Um, but I think, again, he played that mental disability card and he, they, like, there was never enough evidence to bring charges on him and, like, actually charge him with a crime, so. Except for him admitting to it? Um, Yeah. Okay. Right. That makes sense. So, um, lots of evidence in this case. Really, really sad how it ended up. Obviously, there's no rhyme or reason. He gave a story. So, his story on what he's saying happened. (sighs) Because eventually, he kind of half-ass admitted to it. Right. He's saying that the girls... 
Was he never charged with this? No, he is. He was. Oh, okay, he, okay. He's in jail. He's he's in prison. Okay, he's got in it. prison. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, eventually, he had kept his mouth shut in the entire trial, and then eventually he came up with this half-assed truth story. So he's saying that the girls came by, that they were walking by, and that one of them had a nosebleed, and they asked for help because he was outside. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, go ahead and go and run up to the bathroom. And that they, he had a bath running. Or, I know. So, okay. and that while one of the girls was cleaning up her nose, uh, the other one fell in the bathtub. As often happens. Right. Yes. Uh, the probability of a 10-year-old drowning in a bathtub, very, very slim. Unless she's being held down. Um, so she's, he's saying that while one of them had fallen in the bathtub, the other one was screaming and And he he just so happened to have the water running in the bathtub and he wasn't in the house. I know. And he covered the girl's mouth to stop her from screaming because he didn't want like neighbors to freak out that there's a little girl screaming in the house and that he accidentally like suffocated suffocated her and by the time that he had gotten up to see the other girl she had been drowned in the bathtub and then from there he was just really scared so he did what he did which is you know go dump him on a field so he's saying it's accidental it is a stretch to say the least a stretch wow he just had like the worst day ever his story (laughs) and he's sticking to it (laughs) Um, while he's, he, so he was convicted of the two murders. He was given life in prison. Mm -hmm. He has faked illnesses while he's been in jail. He's also tried to make a case for having a mental disability, which to an extent he does. (laughs) Right. Um, But not to the point where he shouldn't be held responsible for his actions. Right. If he's this... This mentally ill that he's this dangerous, then he still needs to be yes removed. Exactly. So Maxine was proven guilty for preventing the course of justice because she had lied, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then as far as assisting with the cleanup, they did not convict her on that because there was no solid evidence that she'd helped up with the girls, with the putting them, putting them in the trunk, taking them out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. They could not convict her on that. Maxine is out of jail now. Mm-hmm. And she is one of the very few people in the UK who have been given identity protection or witness protection. Mm-hmm. And so they changed her name completely. We don't know what her name is now. She has a family now. She has her own kid. Apparently it's one of those things that maybe even her kid will probably never know her for first name Mm -hmm. unless of course the kid is told we don't even know if the husband is aware of her true identity at this point interesting so there's two sides of the story as far as whether people believe that she did help Mm -hmm. or she was just naively believing him again because he's so controlling that he really wasn't um guilty of anything so her the way that she presented, her attorney presented it, was that she was truly believing that he was innocent when she was saying he didn't do it. And because she thought this has happened before, they falsely accused them of stuff, I'm going to give him a fake alibi. Okay. That I'm home with him. 
when of course she wasn't it was proven that she wasn't right to when we i guess we'll never know unless she were to say what if she did help with any of the cleanup but yeah um this is potentially again a soft kill so there is there was no bloody scene then calls into question his whole story about her having a bloody nose cause... exactly so there's that in april of 2004 so right after this all happened, the house was demolished, completely tore down to the ground. Of course, no one's going to want to buy right. it. Just fun facts. In 2005, a man who was in jail with him or in prison for a quadruple murder for of, of adults attacked Ian because he thought his crime was so horrendous. Listen... When it comes to kids. I, right? Have Adam. Yeah. Beat him like a pinata. I there's don't a, care. There's a code of conduct in prison. So, I, I respect the code. Right. In 2006, uh, so a year after that, Ian tried to OD. He was not successful. That's a shame. But, while he was in did I write here? Meatloaf? <laughs> While he was in Meatloaf. Oh, no, no, no. I did write down Meatloaf. <laughs> Sorry. You put your grocery list on there, too? <laughs> I was like, why the hell did I write Meatloaf? So while he was in the hospital getting treated for his OD, of course, the, the you know, the jail went into his cell and searched it because see if there's any more. But what they found was a, a tape, a recording that had a Queen song at the beginning and a Meatloaf song at the end. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I was like, why did I write Meatloaf? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> but in between these two songs, he again tried to do a half-ass confession. But he's sticking to his story. The actual audio is not available, but the transcript is. And he's giving this half-assed story the same thing. The girls came up. It was accidental. I didn't mean to. It was not sexual in nature. I don't know what he's trying to accomplish with this. You are already charged and convicted, sir. Yeah. But I I don't know if if it's his way of dealing with stuff or... I don't know if he wants word to get back to other prisoners that that's, you know, what they're saying happened, didn't happen. No, sir. But so he tried to do this half-assed confession on a tape. He's still in prison. I don't think he's eligible for parole. But just a very interesting story about someone who kept getting, kept falling through the cracks yeah. And never getting charged with something. Until it was too late. Until it was too late. And unfortunately, yeah. it affected, you know, not only the parents, the family, but an entire community of people who were so uh, involved and uh, invested in this case. Because it just hit hard. Two 10-year-old girls, they weren't, you know, runaways. Right. Um, and it was someone in their town, someone that they trusted. Because right. it was their TA's husband. And... And imagine her, like... Oh, sorry, yeah. I forgot to mention this. So this bitch also was interviewed by one of the local TV reporters. And she had a sheet of paper, just a drawing from one of the girls that said, hope to see you next year, you know. And she was just saying 
like here's a paper that the girls gave me and you know they were my best students and I'm you know they they were just great and but the words that she used were all past tense and they hadn't yet been and they um, hadn't been discovered yet so some of these interviews oh she knew she knew she totally knew so some of these interviews though the reporters not only were they airing them for people to see because they're news reporters, but they were also turning over information to the police like, hey, just in case you missed my newscast, here's a copy of this because this was just using past tense and we're like, it's weird. Like, we're all still holding hope. Why isn't she? Yeah. You know? So just weird, weird situation. And then just the fact that this guy, I'll have to show you the interview. We'll post it online. He is so unfazed and like likes the attention that he's being interviewed um let's say if they hadn't been found these interviews would have been like oh man this is just the last guy that saw them alive yeah you wouldn't have known any better so it's just really scary so you know watch your kids strange stranger <laughs> plug hashtag yeah um so yeah really sad story from so um so shout out to my People across the pond. Um, <laughs> uh, but just really interesting how he inserted himself into all that and how he kept falling through the cracks. But eventually, they cracked down on him. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that, by You're the way. welcome. So for today's What the Florida. Florida man with state tattooed on his head calls 911 for a ride home. And it's literally a guy that has the state of Florida tattooed on his forehead. (laughs) God. A Florida man with his favorite state tattooed on his forehead was arrested after calling 911 multiple times requesting a ride home. 22-year-old Matthew Latham called 911 requesting a ride home around 4 a.m. in a Newport Ritchie suburb late Sunday night. A deputy who found the Florida man offered to call him a cab, but he said he didn't have any money for one. He then began to walk in the direction of his home, then called 911 a second time, again requesting a ride. The same officer caught up with him and arrested him while he was on the line. <laughs> After a search, marijuana was found on Latham and was charged with the misuse of the 911 system in addition to possession of marijuana. Because apparently during this time... Oh, I guess having marijuana in Florida is still illegal. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It literally looks like a Florida birthmark on his forehead. It does. <laughs> that looks terrible. That's awful. Wait, babe. Wonder where you're from. Yeah. Of his favorite state. Favorite state, Florida. Guess what my favorite state is. Oh, that's funny. All right, we're gonna shout out some Patreons. Our murder lovers, because everybody's still just signing up for murder lovers, so holla. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, First murder lover is going to be Elise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Katie. 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 Oh, Katie. Katie. Oh, Katie. Hi, Katie. Hi. Even I though miss you, you. Even though you always want to talk to Fatina, you just get to talk to me <laughs> all the time. I'm Anything you send Instagram. to us is coming to me. I miss you. Ping. And then last but not least, this week is going to be Leslie. Hey, Leslie. Hello, Leslie. Thank you so much, you guys. Um, and you three are within our first 10, so you guys will be getting a pop socket sent Ooh, to you. So thank you so like much. This. 
This is very ASMR. That also sounded a little like... Mm. I can't... I mean, I, I love mine. Oh, my God. You know what I said on the phone today? I was on what? the phone with my uh, coworkers today, and we were talking about uh, something, and Navy was in the background with his duck, and he was, like, squeaking it or whatever, and... My coworker's like, what is he doing? I was like, ah, he's just quacking his duck. And I was like, I understand how that could sound like code for something, but it's not. He's just quacking his duck. He's quacking his duck. Alrighty, so cool. if you guys would like to get on our Patreon list for special things, um, make sure that you go over to Patreon and search Stranger Danger, a true kind podcast. It'll pop right up for you. Um, you can also go over to our Instagram at a Stranger Danger podcast. You can email us Stranger Danger at no. no you got to count how many R she just said and then send us an email. <laughs> Not that many. Email us at Gmail. A stranger danger podcast at gmail.com. Wow. Oh, you can find us on Facebook, Stranger Danger, colon, a true crime podcast. Join the group, Stranger Danger, colon, murder lovers. And you can find us on Twitter using at SD true crime pod. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye now. Bye.